Wild Feather Podcast. I'm Brooke Dunwell, serial entrepreneur, sponge for life, and lover of people. Join me as we uncover the stories of courageous female entrepreneurs, founders, and investors pushing beyond limitless boundaries. Let's explore their creative journeys and pursuits to greatness. We have Nicole Clark with us today. She is the founder of Trellis, which is a state trial court legal research and analytics platform with AI-based insights on judges, verdicts, opposing counsel, motions, dockets, and any other legal issues. If your attorney wants to get insight or you want to get insight into previous verdicts, motions, or get the goods on opposing counsel or how judges have ruled in previous cases, Trellis is the place to go. Nicole is brilliant. She's fine. And I am thrilled to have her on the show. As a bonus, Trellis is offering 14 days of free access to our Wild Feather listeners. You can click on the link provided on our Instagram or on our website, thewildfeatherpodcast.com. Without further ado, let's chat with Nicole. So thanks, Nicole, for joining us today. We are super excited to have you on our podcast and can't wait to hear your story. You have some cool stuff going on. Thanks. Really excited to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you started or got to the point of starting Trellis. And tell us a little bit about what Trellis is. Sure. The combination. So yes. Uh, my background is as a litigator. Uh, I did a lot of employment, class action work, and I was litigating in state trial court a lot. And I really just couldn't believe how difficult it was to access information from our trial court system. Uh, it's the largest court system in the world, and yet the data is fragmented across thousands of individual county courts. And so at a high level, that's what Trellis is. What we do is we go in county by county to each trial court. We bring in what is otherwise messy, raw data. We structure it, we classify it, we normalize it, and then we make it searchable. So really sort of one searchable interface for the entire state trial court system. Um, and then, of course, once you structure it, we can layer powerful analytics on top of this data. So the, the, the impetus was in my practice, um, just continuously being shocked at how difficult it was to find out information. And one of the things not many people know is, is that uh, whenever an attorney gets, gets assigned a, a case at the beginning, they'll send around an email to other folks in their firm that says, you know, does anyone have any intel on judge so-and-so? the judge you get assigned to. And I just couldn't believe that we were sourcing anecdotes to make these wildly strategic decisions. I mean, the, the judge that you get assigned to has massive implications for your case and judges are not all the same and they decide things very right. differently as they're humans. Uh, so it matters a lot. And so um, really it was my own frustration in trying to access data in the court system where I was practicing, where all of my colleagues were practicing. And I just couldn't believe that no one had made this data more accessible yet. And so how, yeah. how we landed here. So now, what are some examples of, like you gave the, 
example of the judge. So no. if you're an attorney and you're wanting to know what the history of the judge is, of like how they've made their decisions or what decisions they've made on what and what cases they've been involved in and that kind of stuff, you look that information up, correct? Correct. So to think about it right now, um, if you were to go to a county court to try to pull information on a specific case, you would have to know the case number in order to get any information. And what's interesting about that is that it takes away any ability to use the data strategically. It means you have to know a case exists before you can find out any information about it. So what Trellis does is really allow you to think strategically about what is the data that could help you make better decisions. So one, starting with a judge, right? How have they ruled on similar cases? Have they decided on this issue before? I need to know that. Next, your opposing counsel. Um, how have they thought about these types of cases before? Do they actually take cases to trial? Are they more of a demand shop? Where do they settle? What is their strategy? Even all the way down to granular, what are motions that they filed in the past that are similar? And can you see ahead of time how they're likely to position issues so that you can be really strategic and proactive in the way that you litigate? So it's really opening up the, the court system where we're actually practicing to gaining meaningful insights that are going to help you really leverage better outcomes for the client. And when you think about it, it's wild that we haven't been utilizing that up until yeah. now. It's crazy to me. I can't even imagine, especially on some of the more important cases, shall we say, but I think that would be helpful even on a granular level. It, it is. And if you think about it, it's the so, so the trial court system is where every case starts, right? You a case gets filed, it starts in trial court. 99% of cases do not make it to trial. They're never going to even make it to the end of that trial. They're going to settle somewhere in there after a few years of litigating. Very, very few make it to trial, then make it to appeal. And really that data set of cases up on appeal is the only thing historically that we've utilized to do research for legal cases. So it really sort of wipes out and creates sort of a black box in the, uh, the court system that we're, we're practicing in. So yes, these cases range from you know, individual matters to giant class action with millions of dollars, but the company cases on the line. And historically, there has been very little data to go off of to be able to really, really advocate best for your client. Hmm. Interesting. So tell me about the journey. Like I, I remember talking to you um, and you brought up, it took you two years of fear and courage to, <laughs> <laughs> to launch. <laughs> so how long were you working on this or did you have the idea in your head before you actually launched? It was definitely a couple of years, even with the idea percolating, right? It was, I continued to see the pain point. I continued to be shocked that the solution that seemed obvious to me didn't exist yet. And I would continue on and have, you know, moved to a different firm and think, okay, well, it must be because this firm um, has has less resources that we, we aren't utilizing more data. And then I'd move to another firm and no, it'd be the same. And so the idea really was percolating for a number of years. The, the final sort of origin impetus that, that really shook me was when I was writing a giant motion one night. It was one of those huge motions, basically your one chance to get out before trial. And 
I was complaining to my colleague and I didn't know anything about the judge and it was a complex issue and I wasn't sure how to really structure the motion in the first place, just organize it. And he said that he thought he had appeared before the same judge in the past. And we went and we checked. And in the internal document management system, there was a PDF that was a ruling by the judge. And I simply felt like when I found this, I got handed the answers, right? I could Mm -hmm. see the way the judge thought about it. And I could see the case law to use and the way to organize it. And for me, that was finally the light bulb moment of how is it possible that I didn't have this as a, as a starting place to be able to research this from before I'm drafting my motion? Like, why wasn't there somewhere that wasn't hidden in a case you'd have to already know about <laughs> in order to find right. this information? And so that's when uh, I finally started complaining to engineer friends that I knew, developer yeah. friends that I knew. <laughs> I was getting ready to ask you, like, where in the world do you start with something like this? Because taking all that data and making it um, Usable. searchable. Yes. <laughs> Sounds really challenging. Yeah, it, no, it definitely is. And it's not something that as a lawyer, uh, I had skill in, I knew that I would need a, a developer to do this. Um, and in fact, it was something that I was trying to solve with my attorney brain, which is, okay, maybe we download these from the court and then we just save them as PDFs. And I mean, I came up with ridiculous options that don't make any sense, right? I love I mean, it. Hey, it's a start. It's a, it was a start. I mean, talking with engineers, it, it really opened up the sort of magic of if you can imagine it, you can build it, right? Like yeah. there, there really isn't a limit to what you can build. You just have to figure out what's the pain point and what's going to be the best way to solve it and what's the user going to enjoy most, uh, what's going to be the, the best way for them to think about entering into the data. And so what we did was we actually just started after <laughs> a lot of complaining, uh, we started collecting data only in the courts that I was appearing in most often. So at this point, this was California, probably uh, you know up and down sort of Southern California, San Francisco as well. And I just used our data in practice. I really wanted to validate that this was something that was meaningful, that was going to have an impact on my practice. And I went on to re- just have a ridiculously successful motion practice during that time. And so for me, ultimately, that's what gave me the courage. I I could look and I could see that I hadn't changed. I didn't suddenly become a genius. I had access to data and that gave me an advantage. And if that was the case, then we were onto something huge here because this Mm -hmm. is an entire largest, largest court system in the entire world that currently hasn't been tapped or monetized. And how is that possible? And so ultimately years of fear <laughs> and proving it to myself, no, this this is meaningful and a game changer for me is what right. is what gave me the courage to jump from practice entirely. Yeah. Okay. So my mind goes to a couple of things. One is how do you gather all of the information from the courts, right? If you have to have a case number, yeah. How do you do that? And then number two, if every attorney has access to this information going forward, how do you think that's going to change outcomes or the within the courtroom? Right. Because if you have access like yourself and you're like, I had a crazy successful um, motion practice because I had access to this information, 
But now if it opens up to both attorneys having access, yeah. how do you think that will change the outcome of being in court, right? Yeah. So two, I'm sorry. Those are two completely different questions. That's but- okay. I'll hit the first one first, which is how, okay. which is also always really funny because when we demo to large law firms and customers, their, their main response is, but how? Simply because this hasn't been done before. And, right. you know, everyone knows. It sounds the like you're point. taking an archaic system and transforming it, right? And it's not only one archaic system, right? It's thousands of them. And that's really honestly why it hasn't been done before is because this isn't an easy go in, grab, you know, transform one system and you're done. It is county by county. So each state is really a huge obstacle. Um, the, the data is, is, it's public data at its core. It's just not accessible. So Part of that is just making sure that we're structuring the data on our side. There isn't structure at the courts, but we come up with the structure of what are the parties, uh, what is the the judge, the case, and then how do we think about case types? Again, none of that is normalized across any of the courts. So really what we do is create that structure, sort of a trellis uh, table, if you will, of what these are, and then map all of this fragmented data back to our uniform structured data set. Um, there's a lot more complexity in there that I would let my dev team talk oh, I'm more sure. about. I'm sure. um, but yes, that suffice it to say that that's <laughs> sort of the, it, but it's not easy. The, the normalization of the data is by far the hardest part. Um, and then uh, what happens when everyone has access? So yeah. if you think about it now, we, we, we have me as an example. So I had a competitive advantage, right? I had sort of unilateral access to data that other folks didn't have access to, gave me a competitive advantage, awesome, super helpful. And while we continue to build out and early customers, they've all had competitive advantage as well. But as we move forward, it really becomes table stakes to be able to have access to this basic information. So if you think about the giant incumbents that have really sort of historically owned legal research, you have Lexis and Westlaw, giant legal research companies that focus on court of appeals. And for law firms, it's basically malpractice not to have access to Lexis or Westlaw at a core. So as we move forward, now that this data is available, technology is there, the data is there, and it's not cost prohibitive, it becomes industry standard that you need to be able to see the same data that your opposing counsel can. And so the way I see it as we move forward, it's only a benefit. Transparency into our justice system to understand what's really going on, both for the advocates within the courts, um, as well as the public, is really essential And finally, we're getting to a place where there should be an expectation that you can access this data, that you can gain insights from it. It's not a black box any longer. So it simply becomes industry standard as we move forward uh, with an expectation that if your your judge ruled on this issue, you need to know about that. That, That's basic, right? So uh, that that's how I see the the, the double sided. Yeah. We we both need access. Period. We all need access to data. We know it makes decision making better. <laughs> so yeah, right. it's time. Right. That's great. So now tell us how you started because you started through TechStars, didn't you? You launched through TechStars. So we we uh, very very early my my law firm that I was at originally when I when I uh, decided to jump became our very first customer 
and they basically knew that I had been winning. <laughs> and then when I presented, I'm, I'm jumping and sort of this was the product and they could connect that to, oh, that makes sense. Then they got really excited and said, hey, why don't you basically bring some of your engineers on site and we'll iterate in real time with the attorneys. So we did a couple months at my prior law firm where we just worked with the attorneys there. Um, we, from there, went into Techstars, as you mentioned, which uh, basically is a startup accelerator. And what we, what we did in Techstars was just continue to really focus on product. How do we make the product better for our initial customers? How do we launch with a meaningful data set that is really going to help folks? Um, and then how do we think about building and scaling a business? This was not something that I had any background in, um, especially venture capital and really everything about startups was entirely new to me. So being able to sort of get mentorship guidance and support from folks that had scaled many businesses successfully was really meaningful for us early in our journey. And then from there, uh, we were we were out and live in the market and raising capital and, and trying to really grow this thing. Yeah. And have you raised, you've raised Series A? We did just close our Series A. Yes. Okay. So I want to go back to Techstars okay. because I'm certain that there are some people out there that have thought about applying or mm -hmm. know of it, et cetera. So tell us some pros and cons of Techstars because I'm a huge fan of Techstars. But what are some takeaways that you have from that program and how long were you part of that? And um, yeah, like share some takeaways. So it's, it's possible. So we were in there pre-COVID, which uh, is a different experience now. I am, I'm not sure exactly, but there was a lot of benefit to us for being on site, working directly with the folks. But basically it's, it's a couple months where you really just focus on making your product better and learning and getting guidance and uh, also thinking about raising capital and the best way to do that and to position and to network, et cetera. So the, the pros are that. I think it depends. An accelerator is going to be right for every company. Um, it was right for us at that time because I was a first-time founder and I really didn't know any of this. And I knew that I didn't know any of this. And so I really welcomed um, being able right. to learn from people that had made mistakes and could go ahead and sort of warn me before I made the same silly mistake. Sure. Um, the, the, it's not going to make sense if you're a multi-time founder, um, if you already have a network of access to capital. Um, the, so it really depends sort of on what you're growing, what stage you're at, and um, if that mentorship piece is going to be really meaningful for you. And it was for us. And, and I'd say for anyone who's really new to, to the startup world, generally the startup universe, um, it, can be, it can be certainly helpful. So how have, by the way, congratulations on closing series A. That is not the easiest thing to do. I, and I recognize that. So awesome. Appreciate job. that. Thank it's you. Very exciting. So tell us about life after series A. Is there, do you have a difference? Like, is there a defining difference from life before series A to life after series A? No, I think the way that I look at everything is sort of in, in pieces, right? What, what do we need to do to get to the next milestone? Um, and for venture-backed businesses, that's often your next uh, raise. 
Um, mm-hmm. And what are the pieces that we need? Because it's if you if you think about it as uh, what do we do to IPO? It's just really overwhelming, right? You're starting from nothing, yeah. and there's a lot in between there. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily that there's a, a defining piece. In fact, I, one of the funny things about uh, us closing our Series A is I think if you had asked me during TechStars, a Series A company would have been like, oh my God, they made it, right? <laughs> and now I realize that we're still super early stage. Series A is still early stage, right? And so it's just a funny sort of mindset shift of I recognize what I didn't know and that we, we're still at the starting line. We are still very, very early in our journey. And continuing forward, we what, what the difference is, is as we hit milestones, we get the opportunity to continue forward, right? We get the opportunity to prove it again so that we can get to the next milestone so that we can then prove it again and sort of take those steps all the way, um, having supportive investors and supportive capital and being able to push the company forward and focus on growth um, when you... Fundraising is definitely a, a full time job when when you are fundraising. Sure. It's very I think difficult. building a deck is full time oh, job. Let alone fundraising. Decks are just never done. Is the problem? With it's <laughs> just this never ending oh. iteration, and then and then you have mentors, and each one is telling you something totally different. Oh yeah. They're all smart, they're right, and so what do you incorporate? What don't you incorporate? And the the universe of decks are, are one of my least favorite things. They're necessary. Yeah. What I like to think about for a deck is you're not using the deck to tell the story. You're using the deck for the opportunity to tell the story. Right? Make it That's short. True. They have a very low attention span. They see tons of these, less words. <laughs> all you're trying to do is actually get that meeting. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Just, I think sometimes not that we need to talk about decks, but sometimes I think people get in their head like they want to just like trying to take their product and their story and their information and putting it into a very concise like it's impossible that's gonna get the eyes of an investor. It's like it makes your head spin. Like when you're, I think from the outside in, it's easier yeah. from than when you're in the inside out because you just get in your head. I don't know. Well, at no, least that's my opinion. It's absolutely true, and I would say it doesn't. It doesn't get that much easier. What it gets is you get people on the outside that are more willing to say, "Cut the cut this out. This is this is actually you're you're attached to all the bits of this story, right?" This is the oh, part sure. that's interesting. This is the part that's interesting. And, uh, you know, and then unfortunately, the the network matters. The The truth is that, especially as you move on um, in, in fundraising and, and the company moves on, to get those meetings, you get them through other people, uh, other connections, through oh, your own sure. investors that are making those introductions for you. And yeah. the combination of a, a good deck with investors that are introing you is what is going to get conversations. It's difficult to go in cold, uh, period. Oh, very, yeah. very. Do you think that Techstars had a huge impact? Did they, was that networking component impactful with your raising money? You know, I think I went into it when, when I started and it was, I, I was exploring sort of how do you do this startup thing, right? And I thought, okay, well, an accelerator is the only option. Um, and excel, getting accepted into an accelerator, getting accepted to Techstars, that means we're going to get funded on demo day. I think I went in with that mindset. That's not true at all. 
Um, you, they'll make introductions for you, but the founder has to convince investors at the end of the day. Yeah, Tech Techstars sure. is opening doors, but you're the one that walks through them. And so to go in and believe that simply because you made it into an accelerator that equates to funding, absolutely not true. Um, yeah. I think investors see it as a plus. It's an extra sign with a little bit of credibility. It is not the reason you will get funded by any means. It oh, is sure. simply okay, we'll, we'll potentially talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. I actually kind of feel sorry for investors because they've got to get tired of dealing with all of the pitches and people reaching out to them. It's got to be kind of disillusioning when you think about we're all, we've all got these dreams, right? And we're coming, we're pitching you our dreams. Like, no, no. I mean, yeah, you can, you can just crush people's dreams and spirits so many times before it's got to sort of be a little disillusioning. I, I agree. It, it's yeah. interesting, but it's a lot easier to be on that side. I, I'll still say that any day. If you were to, to pick a side that, that's easier, there's a side that I think is way more fun, uh, which is actually creating but if you're on the side of being pitched or or pitching, the the one pitching is the one that's really putting it all out there for sure. Yeah, for sure. So raising funding is a full-time job and you were able to do that. Now, what's making you successful? Like what have been some of the biggest obstacles that you faced? And also what are some of the takeaways that you had? Because I know we talked about delegating and hiring and yep. scaling and like, where does all that fall into your roadmap? I think part of the, the hard part, especially at the early stages, is that um, you don't have a great team when you're when you're super early, right? You are the team, and you're wearing thousands of different hats depending on the day, and you're having to become an expert in all of these different things. Um, as you grow a team around you that you can actually delegate to, that becomes something that you can rely on more, but it's especially hard in the early days when you're trying to become an expert at so many things at once. And uh, you, do, you can't do it, right? You can, only, you can only do so much. And so I think the, the, the really important things at the early, early stage is just to show traction. If you're, and this is going to be specific. I, it's, I would say it's, there's many ways to build a company and venture back is only one way to do it. And there's lots of reasons to not do it that way. But if we're talking about venture back, which is more of what I know, then what you need to show is traction early on. And however you get there, that's what you need to show, whether it be early customers that want to sign up, that are willing to talk to you. You're basically, <laughs> whatever you need to do to, to really show that people believe that there's a need for your solution, that's mm -hmm. your very first step. Everything else should be second and demonstrating that this is a real pain point that people are interested in having solved is your number one. It should be all the focus in your early days. Yeah. That's so interesting. That has come up. I can't even tell you how many times in speaking with other female founders is the research component, validating your product yep. um, before you launch. Cause I think you can, if you don't do that, I think you can be up a Creek without a paddle really quickly. It's for spend lots of money. Yeah. Right? No, it's definitely true. It's one of many. It's it's something that you'll actually get really good at or or hopefully. I mean, the, the goal for any startup is we make an assumption and then we test it. We make an assumption and then we test it. And if you have enough time to do enough tests, some of those pay off. And 
But that's the exact same way you need to think about before you're starting the business, which is you have an assumption that this is something important. Test it. How can you test it? What are the early ways? And then that moves on as you develop your product into something that incorporates constantly. We're running A-B tests constantly. And we we basically, you know, the, the founding team here, it's we may disagree entirely on our, on our just finger in the air belief. I believe this is going to work. I believe it's not. Cool. Let's test it. Right. At the end of the day, the data is what what tells you the answer. The the, the people tell you, uh, your customers tell you. And I've been wrong countless times or surprised or shocked. I'm, I continue to be sometimes on some of the things that I thought would be super meaningful that weren't or I thought were not such a big deal that ended up being a huge trigger to help us with growth. So mm-hmm. it's it's testing. It's how many how many things can you test in what period of time? <laughs> how fast right. can you do it? And part of that is fast decision making. You cannot you cannot wait. You have to get in there, try. If it doesn't work, cool, try something else. But you can't be like, I don't know. Let's wait and see. Death, death to a startup. You you just gotta test as much as possible. Yeah, that's good advice. So what have you learned throughout your journey? What are some, you can, what have you learned about yourself? And then what have you learned? I would say more intuitively about startups because you're brand new to the startup. Did you have a, a thought process or did you have um, a belief about startups before you jumped in or um, any perceptions maybe? Uh, so tell us what you've learned about yourself. Cause I think that personally, this is yep. just a side note, but yep. I think if you want to learn about yourself, start a company because it is the most enlightening self-awareness yes. journey I think you could ever go on. Yes. I, I had a friend that said to me that whatever you, whatever your lessons are in life, whatever your obstacles, whatever you need to learn, those, you start your business and those come in constantly during your business. Like you, whatever it is, you will face it directly in your business, in your startup. And so those aren't personal issues. Those are your issues that you have to solve in life and they will come to you in your business. Do not worry. (laughs) So it's, it's a, it's a journey of learning. So if anything, I would say that's, that's the one thing that law school, I, I look back on and being a, being an attorney, was was not the answer for me. Um, but what law school did was teach me that I could learn anything. And that was invaluable. So to not be afraid to say, I don't know this. I definitely don't know this. But you know what? I can learn it. I can, I can study. I can figure this out. I can talk to other people and I can learn it. So that's huge. The, the that's personal... Awesome. Uh, the personal journey <laughs> is, and, it, and it's continuing on, right? I, I still say I'm early in this journey, but yes, there is as much personal uh, growth as there is business growth and all, and the amount of obstacles you'll face in your business. Those are very similar to ones, especially for, for founders, because we deeply sort of identify with our company. There's a, there's a very mm-hmm. deep tie between us and our identity and our company and um, it can be difficult. The, the, the obstacles there feel very, very personal. And so it's, a, it's just constant learning. And what it is is ultimately grit. And I, and I know there's a, there, there's a lot of ways to sort of think about this, but what do you do when it gets hard, right? Do, 
how do you just, how do you keep on going? How do you keep on moving forward? And that's what's necessary. And I look back and while I didn't have any background in startups, I'd had a lot of things in my life that had led me to um, be able to operate under sort of survival instinct mode. Mm -hmm. And that has served me well. Now, as I retransition to growth and abundance, that's something I need to learn to really accept and, and do better. I, what has served me to get to here is not necessarily what will serve me going forward and figuring out how to lean into growth and accept abundance and not um, feel <laughs> like we're always in survival mode is, is something that I think is still part of the journey for me. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned, I think that's great because I think all of us, well, I feel like a lot of us are on this uh, learning to receive and accept abundance in in all areas of our life, right? And we don't even realize that we block it. So yeah. I find it so interesting that you brought that up. Have you ever read Grit by Angela Duckworth? I ha- I've read pieces of it and I listened uh, to the Knowledge Project podcast with her, which is a phenomenal podcast for Anyone oh, that's there, awesome. Which was good as well. I've only like read like the first couple of chapters. I haven't um, diving in, but you mentioning grit made yeah. me think of that book. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, what motivates you, and what do you want your legacy to be? It can be a, your personal legacy or your company legacy, whatever you you choose. Again, the hard part there is is separating the two, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Which right. Is, I know. It's a constant battle. <laughs> um, right. I know. But, yes. but I think the longer you go on, the more you realize that you will separate the two. Like, I agree. You have to have your own personal identification. You do. And you have it to. comes with time, right? Yes. I totally agree with that. And being centered and not taking, because there you're, you're going to face failures, obstacles constantly. That is just mm-hmm. part of growing something that has never been done before, building something that's never been built before. So the more that you move forward, the less personal you take those and the more it is part of the journey. That's how we figure out what to do better, how we learn and how we ultimately uh, accomplish and grow. Um, the, the, I'd say there's a kind of, there's so many learning lessons over this time. Um, what motivates me is it deep, deep yearning for building something that has really never existed before and not something small, a category defining business an industry defining business, something massive. And the hard part there is, especially when you're starting from nothing, is feeling like there are wins along the way because you're still so far from what you're, right? Mm-hmm. The, the product's never, mm-hmm. it's never good enough. It's, <laughs> you never have right, enough right. customers. There's never enough growth. And so how do you make sure that you celebrate the wins and also celebrate them for the team. This is a big deal. Everyone's working really hard to support and grow this thing. And if we don't celebrate it as founders, then the team doesn't either. And so recognizing that the way that you sort of incorporate and deal with obstacles and appreciate and, and recognize success is part of the journey and part of what you need to grow. Um, so that's part of the journey for me, but yes, the yearning to build something massive is, is deeply motivating. 
And then how do you want to be remembered? It's by, it's by doing that, right? It's by accomplishing something that very few people could do. Um, and hopefully by growing and learning as a human along the way and being better every day. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And I can understand in your situation because when you think about, well, how many states are you're covering? You've got California done right now, right? Yes. So we have 10 states live. Uh, we have four states that are about to go live and 365 counties. Remember, it's a county by county effort. So Right, right. So when you think about that, I would understand why you have to celebrate each win because yeah. that just sounds like, I don't mean to make it's your huge. sound it's even a giant- sound <laughs> but the fact that you've come this far is amazing like yes. that's awesome yes I was my a friend asked me uh, how I was and it's funny because you know you the the raise announcement and everyone's like yay you're crushing it and my friend said how are you and I said uh you know pushing pushing a rock up a, a hill a very large rock and a never-ending hill <laughs> and I think that's sort of part of the journey but yes if you're not celebrating some success along the way every time we get a new county every time we get a new customer you're not going to make it. It's too hard. You've got to enjoy the people that you're working with and you've got to celebrate even the small successes. And those are still things that I, I strive to get better at. Yeah. I actually, though, if you think about it from a customer, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Perspective. Not onset, but if you think about it from building county by county for you, that gives you time to, um, gain customers in those different areas versus the overwhelming scenario of having this thing built and you got to like just throw it out to the masses and figure out what your strategy is going to be that it's exactly right like steady you know which is great yes no that that's a hundred percent correct and it's one of the reasons while well, ultimately, we're, we're a data company and we will be monetizing this data across industries for better decision making. We're focusing on legal. And one of the reasons is lawyers are licensed to practice in a particular state, which means when we have a sufficient amount of data in that state, we can go live to that market and we can really take market share market by market in a way that's achievable. Whereas if you're like, go take the universe, <laughs> it's, it's totally overwhelming. Who do you market to? How do you think about it? How do you measure success? Um, so I, yes, I agree with you that anyway, you can break down, um, whatever your goals are and, and certainly in gaining market share, break it down to specific markets, get good there and then move forward is, is going to be a much better journey. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. It reminds me of the one thing. If you've ever read that book, just focus on the one thing. It's like focus on the one County, yes. the one state you just keep. Oh, that's so away. hard for me, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. We always look at the big picture, right? Uh, you'll get there. I'm very confident in that. So how can we help you? How can we help you succeed? What can we do for you? I think generally, so, and particularly for female founders, um, I, I think we've got there the, it's an uphill battle. We've got a lot to prove. Um, if uh, again, separating out sort of venture and non-venture backed companies for, for venture backed companies, there are so few, there are so few female founded companies that get, uh, funding and in order to make it better, you've got to, you, you, there's gotta be some more success. We've got to have women that are doing it that are successful so that VCs do what they do, which is pattern match. 
and say, yes, I've seen other Portco companies led by females be super successful, so I can believe in this next one and this next one. So I think we're all sort of in a journey together to demonstrate that there's a massive amount of capability in the market. Um, we need to bring in more female leaders at the, the company level, at the founder level, and show more of a, a pathway for other women to understand that there's lots of options for what we can do with our careers. Um, and so I'd say it's a, it's a combination. I think one, we're all in that together where we, we all are sort of climbing the ladder to demonstrate that, yes, we belong at, at the top of this ladder um, among everyone else. Um, and for the, the leadership generally, it's, it's support. We've got to support each other in this ecosystem. It's, it's too small and there are so many years of, uh, a system working against us. And so it's, it's support, it's talking about it, it's being open about it and being vulnerable. It's essential for us to be able to openly sort of support each other. And then of course, for anyone that uh, wants to check out our, our court system, and really it's a bigger deal than just legal. We're talking about democracy, sort of access to our judicial system in a way that's never been available before, of course. Check out Trellis and uh, see what we've got going on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I definitely, for all the legal folks that I know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to continue watching it to see you all grow and what states Love to grow. It. You um, start expanding in, and for any legal folks out there, I highly recommend this. It sounds like a true game changer, like a major game changer, which is awesome. Thank and hats off to you for embarking on this ambitious journey. Like, I think it's incredible. You're going to do great things. I'm excited for you. Awesome. Super appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. And um, we will keep us, I guess, keep us posted on your journey and your success. And we will support you uh, however we can. Love that. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to The Wild Feather. Be authentic, be limitless, and love yourself.